You are listening to the Just Chill Parenting Podcast. I am your host, Rosie Davidson, an infant sleep consultant, author and mum of three. This is a show all about honest chat where I talk about my favourite topic, sleep, of course, but I will also be covering your burning parenting questions and speak to some very special guests along the way. So buckle up and enjoy! and welcome back to the Just Chill Parenting Podcast. This episode is on a subject that both fascinates me, annoys me, and I just have a lot to say about it. So I'm going to talk all about sleep regressions. So if you are a parent and you have been looking at information online or finding it on Google, on Instagram, wherever you've been looking, you probably will have come across this phrase, sleep regression. I kind of think it's a little bit misleading and I don't really like it because if we use the term regression in paediatrics, we actually mean something quite serious, like a loss of a skill, essentially. And that's not actually what people mean when they talk about sleep regressions in terms of infant sleep. They mean there's a change in sleep and it feels like they're going backwards, but they're actually not. Let me clarify what sleep regressions are and what we can do about them. So the only one that I actually recognise, because people talk about so many different sleep regressions, is just insane. But the one that actually does have some evidence behind it is the quote-unquote four-month sleep regression. I say quote unquote because there is a change in the way our babies sleep around this age, but it's not bang on four months. And the key to everything I'm going to say to you today is actually that every baby is different. And although some of them may follow a similar kind of timeline for doing things, often it's completely different. Bearing in mind, just to think about this as well, Not all babies are born at the exact same stage in gestation. So some are born like preemie, some are 37, 38, 39, 40, 41 weeks. You get the picture, right? So they're all born at different stages. So how could they all possibly go through the same things at the same time? They're different weights. They have different genetics. They have different parents, they have different environments. So anyway, you get the picture. But around four months, and I say around, I would say in my experience, it's anything from about 10 weeks to 24 weeks to give you a good kind of summary. Anytime around this period, you might see a change in your baby's sleep, but you might not. And it's important to say that as well, because a lot of people are waiting for the day their baby turns four months and they're petrified there's going to be this terrible event and suddenly their baby stops sleeping and often it's not the case. But sometimes you might see a change in the way they sleep and they might find it difficult to fall asleep, their naps are suddenly shorter, they're waking up more often, they're harder to settle, those kind of things. And that might be a sign to you that your baby is going through a quote-unquote regression. But let's not call it that. I've also sometimes referred to it as a progression. And the reason I've referred to it as that is because 
actually it's a change in the way they sleep and it's kind of a positive thing because it shows they're developing as they should. So their sleep cycles change and they become more like an adult sleep cycles. If you think about it, they're just becoming more aware as well. They're more aware of their environment. You'll see your baby is potentially awake for longer periods in the day. They're interested in things. They're looking around. They're absorbing their world. And they're more aware of like, you know, they're not necessarily just going to pass out if you lay them down somewhere. So there's that to think about. But there is a change in the architecture of their sleep, so how they actually fall asleep, how they cycle through their sleep cycles, and essentially how they stay asleep as well. Also, we need to think about sleep requirements. And I feel like I talk about this a lot, but you need to look at how much sleep your baby needs over 24 hours. So looking at the 24 hour period, and as they grow from babyhood into toddlerhood, into childhood, into adolescence, into adulthood, into elderly age, their sleep requirements will change. That happens with all of us. Actually, it levels out, obviously, when we become adults. But things change and we need to keep on top of it. So a baby of six weeks old is going to need a lot more sleep than a baby who is three months old. And they will need more sleep than a baby who's six months old. And they will need more sleep than a baby who is 10 months old. So if we don't keep up with their sleep requirements, what can sometimes happen is, for example, let's just say a seven-month-old is still doing a long third nap and we're still trying to put them to bed at the same time as we were three months before, you might suddenly find that your baby is struggling to fall asleep and you're thinking, gosh, they're going through a regression because they didn't used to do this. In actual fact, you need to think about, are they having too much sleep? Has sleep pressure, our sleep hormone adenosine, which we need to build at bedtime in order to feel sleepy and fall asleep, has that had time to build up? Because that's essentially what awake time does. So you might need to look at naps and overall sleep. But it's important to look at that. And that can often be what people are saying a sleep regression is, in my experience. It's actually that their sleep needs have changed. And sometimes as a knock-on effect, we can then start doing different things to try and get them to sleep. Like all the things I'm sure you or people you know may have ended up doing, like rocking, swaying, even getting them in the car and driving them around for an hour to try and get them to sleep. And these things, you wouldn't necessarily have done them if baby was tired enough to fall asleep how they would have before, which might have been in your arms, or you may have just been able to put them down. There's that aspect, but also there is the aspect of how they fall asleep. And with some babies, we can help them to sleep and they still get a really great night's sleep. So by that, I mean rocking them to sleep, feeding them to sleep, holding them to sleep, driving them to sleep, whatever it is that you do. If it's working for you and your family, there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. And do you know what? Even if they are waking regularly in the night and you're helping them back to sleep, which might be what you're doing. So often, if you feed them to sleep, you might be feeding them back to sleep each time they wake between their sleep cycles. If you feel okay with it, and some people can actually feel fairly rested even when they're doing that, if you're okay with it, that's fine. And you can just roll with it, see how you go. And if it gets to a point where that feels unsustainable, that's when you would look at making some change. But don't feel like, oh my gosh, my baby is broken. People are talking about regressions all the time. I'm scared that they've forgotten how to settle. 
they haven't forgotten. It's just that their biology has changed and we might need to look at ways of introducing a different way of settling. And that is what sleep training essentially is. But if we're looking at four months, I don't advise any kind of formal sleep training. But by formal, I mean when somebody might be doing a type of control crying in and out of the room. There might be some crying when you're changing your boundaries, whether that's accompanied or not accompanied. However, you don't need to just put the brakes on and not do anything if you're unhappy and you're tired. There's always something you can do. So we'd look at optimising routine, look at optimising sleep environment and practising how they fall asleep. And this age, around four months, is a great age. I actually think it's like a golden window of opportunity. That's how I explain it in my book, actually. It's a window of opportunity where you can think, okay, we're not under any pressure This doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't matter if they don't fall asleep independently. But each time they fall asleep for bedtime or a nap, we have the opportunity to practice things and give them a chance to feel what it is if we change things. So, for example, you might be rocking your baby to sleep and you think, right, let's try a bit of stillness. Then more rocking when they get upset. Stillness, rocking, stillness, rocking. And eventually there's more stillness, less rocking. And then you might graduate onto trying to keep them in their crib or their cot and let them tell you they're annoyed. If they are annoyed, that is okay as well. It doesn't mean we're not going to be there, but sometimes some babies do just get a bit upset when they're falling asleep. And that is a whole other episode that I can do. The four month mark, there is a genuine change in sleep, but oh my God, people talk about all these other ages for regressions, like set ages for regressions. And I'm going to tell you something, which is kind of a trade secret, I feel like. A lot of these terms, like eight month sleep regression, six month sleep regression, 10 month sleep regression, a lot of these ages of regressions are really popular search terms on Google. So if you are trying to tailor ads and trying to get more clicks on your website, it's really helpful to write about them and talk about them. Call me cynical, but sometimes I feel like people talk about them just because it's a good way to reel people in. But that's not to say that these people don't have your best interests at heart, because I'm sure they do. People like us generally don't go into this industry without wanting to help people with their baby sleep. So there you go. Take from that what you will. But I don't believe that at these particular other ages, there is a sleep regression. There isn't a change in their sleep. There just isn't. Biology stays the same. What does change, like I said, is sleep requirements. We need to keep on top of that. But also there are developmental changes that happen with our babies, which can affect sleep. So, for example, sitting up, rolling over, crawling, walking, talking, all of those kind of things can affect sleep. And if they're learning a new skill and through these intense periods of development, we can see a difference in their sleep, potentially. Not all little ones. Some of them you don't see any change at all. So the thing about these is they don't all walk at the same age. And this is my key argument for this, right? And all these other things. There's common ages and brackets within which they might hopefully start doing this new skill. But let's take walking, for example. I genuinely have seen a baby walk at eight months old. 
I've also seen them walk at 18 months old and beyond, right? So that's a massive window. If you were going to say, okay, this skill of walking is going to affect their sleep, well, it could happen in anywhere between eight months and 18 months. This is just an example. And there's obviously other milestones which happen, like rolling, for example, which might be a smaller window than that. That was just an example that I gave or smaller bracket of time within which it might happen. But I want you to understand that babies aren't robots and they're not doing things at exactly the same time. It just doesn't work like that. And I don't understand for the life of me how people can claim that it does. There is a book and an app, which we won't name. (laughs) A bit like um, a certain baddie in Harry Potter. We won't name this book or this app. But this book doesn't have a great deal of evidence behind it and it was written by somebody who in actual fact was discredited in academia. This book claims to know when your baby's going to be fussy, happy, um, going through a leap and that word might be the clue to you what I'm talking about but if you find something like that helpful, if you want a timeline and you want to say okay I can be looking out for this at this point and that helps you, I'm all for it but I've seen and heard from parents where they have dismissed a period of fussiness because they see on this app or this book that their baby is going through a cloudy patch and they're just fussy because they're just fussy because this is a leap, right? But actually there's something else that's been quite serious that's going on. So an illness or something that needs to be looked at by a doctor. So please trust your gut, tune into your baby. If something's going on, don't dismiss it because of an app. It could be that they're telling you something else is going on, that they're in discomfort. And babies can't obviously tell us with words, so they can only tell us by their behaviour. So please bear that in mind and don't dismiss things. The other point is that it might just be that how they were once settling isn't working anymore. Rather than a leap (laughs) and a change, It has changed, but it's not changed in terms of their biology. But how we're doing things, we might need to just reassess it. So have a think about that. But always tune into you and your baby and your family, your needs, what is working for you and what's not. Now, with older ones and younger ones, in fact, there's so many other things that can affect sleep other than development and routine and all these other things I've spoken about. And it's really important to mention them. So for toddlers, you might find a new sibling can throw a spanner in the works because they're wanting your attention. They're aware things are going on. They're getting worried about it. And therefore that can have a knock on effect on sleep. Starting childcare is a big one. Don't worry about it if your little one is about to start because often it can be quite seamless, but sometimes it can affect it. And this is something that we have to do. So we can't feel guilty about it. But holding your boundaries and thinking about what can I do to help my little one sleep during this period is really helpful. And this is a whole other topic. So perhaps I can cover that on another episode. Holidays also, obviously we want to enjoy holidays, but sometimes things like time difference, changing routine, things you might be doing differently, like you might end up bed sharing or room sharing when you don't normally those kind of things can affect it. Illness is a big one. I mean, it just goes without saying that sleep will hit the skids when 
your child has a bug or a virus, hopefully they will get back to normal very quickly, but illness is often a big one. Teething can sometimes affect sleep. Generally, I would say teething is quite short-lived in terms of sleep disruption. So normally it's about three to five days as the tooth is appearing. If it's beyond that, I would say teething is probably getting the blame for other things unless you've got tooth after tooth after tooth potentially appearing. And some babies are more sensitive to teething than others, because let's remember, we are all different. So teething is one that can affect sleep. And moving house is another one that can change boundaries and make our little ones a little bit disrupted. But all of these things that I've mentioned by holding your boundaries and working with them and what they need we can still have good sleep. It doesn't have to all go out of the window. And if you need any tailored help with any of those things, then we can obviously advise you. So all in all, sleep regressions aren't really true regressions in terms of sleep moving backwards or them losing a skill. They are a sign that their sleep is progressing and moving forward and they are changing But we need to keep in mind that it might be they need less sleep. They might need different timings in their day. It might be that they need a later bedtime, earlier bedtime. It might be to do with how we are responding to them during the night or how they fall asleep. And all those things are absolutely things that you can work on. It's not lost forever. This four month sleep regression is permanent. It is a permanent change. And I don't want you to be frightened of that because the situation you're in is definitely not permanent. It is all a season. It's all a stage. Each age and stage will have its own challenges, but you can be prepared and confident, hopefully, from my advice to tackle it. So to reiterate how I would work in a one-to-one or our online courses, which are designed for you to do this yourself, how we would work on a sleep regression problem is looking at the key things I always look at. So sleep environment, is there anything we need to change? Routine, is there anything we need to change? And how they settle, is there anything we need to change? And also always bearing in mind, are they healthy? Are they comfortable? Do we need to consult our GP, health visitor or paediatrician? And always trust your gut and think, maybe there's actually something else they're telling me. So I hope that's been really helpful to understand a bit more about sleep regressions and hopefully not be so scared of them. And if somebody tells you, oh, it's the eight month sleep regression, you can say, actually, there might be a lot going on with my baby's development at this age, but it's nothing scary. It's nothing I can't cope with. And if I can't cope, I can reach out for help. episode is brought to you by Just Chill Baby Sleep, their number one infant sleep consultancy in the UK and beyond. We really love sleep and we want you to have all the information that you need about sleep at your fingertips. Our award-winning self-led online courses can banish those bad nights and leave you feeling calm and in control and most of all well rested. For more information about our online courses and one-to-one support please go to justchillbabysleep.co.uk Listeners can also use the code JCPP for 10% off any online course or bundle. So sleep well. So on this podcast, I also talk about other topics kind of related to parenting, 
this one in particular is a massive bugbear of mine. And when I mentioned it on my Instagram, it exploded. Dog poo. Oh my God. Since becoming a parent, I don't think anything has annoyed me more than rolling my buggy through dog poo. I mean, I've always known there's dog poo on the streets, but I feel like since becoming a parent, I notice it way, way more. The walk that we have to school every morning with my girls, that particular pavement, I don't know what it is about it, but it is littered with dog poo, like everywhere. You're you're literally dodging out of the way. My eyes are on the ground because otherwise my kids are going to step in dog poo and have to go home and change their shoes before they start school. Or even worse, go into school with dog poo on their shoes and we don't realise. I've been getting more and more irate about dog poo on the pavements and in the parks. And I thought I would do a bit of research for you and also give some of your ideas and your feedback about it. I didn't know the law until I looked it up and I think it's quite interesting. So I'm going to talk a little bit about it. When dogs or other animals poo or feces is left on the floor or somewhere, then it's a massive health hazard and dog owners have a legal duty to clean it up in public areas obviously in their own home, they can leave it wherever they want. As a rule, council fines for dog mess can vary from £50 to £80. I actually don't think that's enough. I think it should be way more than that, maybe as a deterrent. But also, I don't know if there's anyone policing this. I don't think I've ever seen anyone walking around looking to see if somebody's leaving dog poo on the floor. So I'd love to know a bit more about that if anyone knows. But... Let's talk about the legal duty. So one of the laws that we have is that it's not good enough for an owner to say, oh, I didn't notice that they'd pooed because I I don't know, maybe people would say that. I actually confronted somebody recently and I regretted it. So do be careful. So this guy was walking along and he had what looked like quite a scary dog. But at the time I wasn't really thinking about that. I was just walking to the station and The dog pooed and this guy literally just left a steaming massive pile in the middle of the pavement on the approach to the station. I said, excuse me, mate, are you going to pick that up? Oh my God, I instantly regretted it. So this guy turned around, he didn't look altogether with it, but he looked quite aggressive and he turned around and he swore blind at me. He was like, you beeping beep. Who the beep are you to tell me what to do? And I was like, oh my God, I literally just stopped still because he carried on walking. And then I realised, oh my God, he was going down onto the same train platform as me. And I was really scared because I was suddenly like, God, this dog is actually like a weapon in his hands. So I went down onto the platform and was fumbling around in my bag trying to find my card to tap in. (laughs) All the while he's staring me out. I'm like, oh my God, he's going to get his dog to attack me. But thankfully I was able to walk in the opposite direction on the platform to him and he went the other way. And then I kind of watched him and he got off two stops in. So I was like, oh my God, I can now breathe out and know that I'm not going to get attacked. So do be careful if you're going to point it out to people. I mean... I think we need to judge things in the moment, but maybe don't when it's a scary looking guy and a scary looking dog. 
But he had a legal duty to clean up that dog poo and it really annoyed me that he just left it there, knowing that somebody could step in that. And do you know what? Obviously, lots of us walk around and we might just step without looking at the ground. But there are people with limited eyesight or who are blind who might just step in that. Or somebody goes through it with a buggy or their trolley or a motorised scooter. Just anything. It just annoys me so much. And trying to clean buggy wheels. Oh my God, when it goes into the tread of the buggy wheel, or even worse, when I've done this, when it's gone through it and I've wheeled it into a hallway and then there's dog poo all over the hallway, or it goes into my kids' brand new trainers, which has happened before as well. In my research, I found out that some councils do actually offer free pooper scoopers to dog owners, which I think is amazing. Not that I would know where to get them or who does it, but I thought that was quite interesting but dog owners should know any responsible dog owner and I know lots of them will carry around plastic bags to pick up their dog's poo so you can actually contact your council if there's excessive dog mess on your street or in your neighborhood and you can report if there's like a problem a regular problem so I've actually been thinking about this I might report I think the road leading up to the kids school has been reported but you never know, it might be worth just mentioning it again. I thought this was really interesting and I spoke to somebody about this the other day. The Forestry Commission recommends using the stick and flick dog poop method of brushing or sweeping it into nearby undergrowth if you're in a rural field or countryside, i.e. away from public footpaths. This makes so much more sense to me. So if you are on a countryside walk, then I kind of don't see the problem if you're not able to pick it up. Obviously, if you're able, pick it up. But if you're not able for some reason or you're somewhere that's fairly rural, flicking it right into a bush where it's not, no one's going to tread in it. I don't see the problem of that. But do you know what kills me? I'm guessing some of you might have seen this. And the first time I saw it, I can't remember. The first time I saw it, I was like, what are all those little plastic bags doing hanging on that fence? And I realised they had dog poo in them. What the hell? Why is there this unwritten thing across the country? Because I've seen it in different places. It's like this unwritten rule that there's these dog owners out there who pick up their dog's poo, which is great, put it in a bag. But instead of taking it with them or putting it in a dog poo bin or disposing of it elsewhere they hang them on a fence. Why? Or like on trees, I've seen them hung on a tree in the woods. Why would you do that? That bag is not going to disintegrate, it's plastic. You would be better off just flicking the dog poo into a bush and allowing nature to take its course. Why on earth do people hang these bags around? Not only is it an absolute eyesore, but it's awful for the environment. It absolutely drives me wild. So if you are caught not picking up dog poo, you can get fined, which is, as I said, 50 to 80 pounds. And if it goes to court, the maximum penalty is a thousand pounds. I would love to know if people actually go to court and if anyone actually pays it. Um, But if you refuse to pay a fixed penalty notice, you could get another fine for up to a thousand pounds. I don't know if that means thousand pounds and then a thousand pounds or just up to a thousand pounds but I feel like we need more of a deterrent so not only is dog poo just gross it's actually quite dangerous and children and toddlers and babies 
are often closer to the ground than we are and sometimes they'll come into contact with it and it can cause, let me see if I can say this, toxocariasis. I don't know if I've said that right, but it's a nasty infection. It can lead to dizziness, nausea, asthma and blindness or seizures. So it's pretty serious, let's face it. And we know that in the UK, it's estimated to be more than 8 million dogs producing more than a thousand tonnes of dog mess every day. And that's just in the UK. We know that most dog owners are obviously caring, responsible individuals, but there are just people who won't clear up after their dogs. So I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that I need to keep my eyes peeled and it drives me insane. If anyone has any solutions to this problem, other than walking around with shower caps on our trainers, (laughs) so that if we step in it, we can just whip it off. I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I know that since becoming a parent, this annoys me more than I think anything else out there on a daily basis. I wanted to give some interesting anecdotes and thoughts from you guys on situations with dog poo. Somebody sent me a message saying, if you've got a dog, you've signed a contract to pick up its shit for life. Which, do you know what? I agree with that. You're essentially signing a contract. And I think there should be some kind of training for owning an animal because we wouldn't have so many discarded unwanted dogs and other animals needing a home if people knew how to look after them properly and pick up after them. Somebody else said to me, someone around our area sprays paint over dog mess on the paths in bright pink, which means it's easier to avoid stepping in it, but also shows how much of it is all over the street. I mean, it's quite a good idea because I'd be less likely to step in it, but it's kind of gross as well. Somebody said, My toddler was taken out for a walk at nursery one day. A staff member noticed she was being strange. Turns out she'd stood in dog poo and was putting her fingers in it. Licking it. Oh, oh my God. That is just my worst nightmare. Somebody else says, if the dog poo bin is full, don't just leave the bag on top of the bin like a game of buckaroo. Carry it until you find a bin with space. I have to walk past a dog bin on the way to work and during the first trimester of my second pregnancy, the sight slash smell of the overflowing bin would make me vom on the side of the road. It's so disgusting. P.S. I know vomiting on the side of the road is also gross, but I didn't have a choice. Oh, bless you. I sympathise with that. In my first pregnancy, I did throw up on the way to work on a lovely square in London called Bedford Square with the black railings and everything. And I threw up, yeah, a couple of times. But I can see why that pushed you over the edge. The dog poo bin, like just take it with you guys. Take it with you if there's no space. A story from someone. I was in a park, strictly no dogs on the sign with my now five-year-old when he was 13 months old. He was walking at the time, but crawled off on the kiddie's trampoline and sat down on the edge. A few minutes later, I realised he had something all down the front of his trousers. Cue, loads of dog mess on his coat, down his legs, on his shoes. I then had to take his clothes off, use hundreds of wipes to clean him, put fresh clothes on, minus the coat, wrap him in the buggy. Luckily, I had the foot muff. 
and bag the other clothes straight home and into the bath. Absolutely vile. We have a dog too and are so respectful of the rules and responsibilities that come with having a dog. Absolutely enrages me. That is the worst part because the dog shouldn't have been in the playground in the first place. People are just vile. Somebody else said, my partner took our daughter to the playground, enclosed, no dogs allowed, and someone had their dog in there. He confronted them and told them politely that the dog wasn't allowed. They kicked off and said they clean up their poo, to which my partner said, well, what about their wee? Their response, yeah, well, what about foxes? How are you going to stop them coming in and messing everywhere? I hardly think foxes are sneaking into the park having a jolly with some ciders while they're at it. (laughs) Laughing face. I mean, people are just insane. Surely the park is big enough that the dog doesn't need to come in the play park. But anyway, there you go. I hope that has helped demystify the rules around dogmas and maybe we can think about some solutions for how we can stop our children getting covered in it. But I would say, since becoming a parent, my number one top tip from day one, when you're going out anywhere with your baby, toddler or child, is to have a change of clothes, whether it's for a spillage, vomit, wetting themselves, pooing themselves, or just getting food down them, or an ice cream, whatever it is. It just happens so often that we need that. So I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Please don't forget to review and let me know if you've enjoyed it and share with your friends. Please also subscribe so you don't miss any further episodes. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back soon with more parenting problems, rants and sleep information. Loads of love and sleep well. Well.